Welcome to another World Audiobooks. Thanks guys so much for tuning in today. Really excited about today's episode. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. We're about halfway through Tarzan, and uh, you know what that means. It's time to start thinking about the next book. So if you have a suggestion for a book that you want to see read on the podcast, just let me know. You can just send me an email on otherworldaudiobooks at gmail.com, or click any of the social links in the description of this episode. And remember, if you're an author or if you know an author who would like to see their book uh, read on Another World Audiobooks, I would love to do that. So just get in touch with me again, same way. Just let me know if you or somebody that you know has a book that they'd like to see free audiobook made and, uh, and shared on this podcast. And now, without further ado, I give you Tarzan. Chapter 15. The Forest God when Clayton heard the report of the firearm, he fell into an agony of fear and apprehension. He knew that one of the sailors might be the author of it, but the fact that he had left the revolver with Jane, together with the overall condition of his nerves, made him morbidly positive that she was threatened with some great danger. Perhaps even now, she was attempting to defend herself against some savage man or beast. What were the thoughts of his strange captor or guide, Clayton could only vaguely conjecture, but that he had heard the shot and was in some manner affected by it was quite evident, for he quickened his pace so appreciably that Clayton, stumbling blindly in his wake, was down a dozen times in as many minutes in a vain effort to keep pace with him, and soon was left hopelessly behind. Fearing that he would again be irretrievably lost, he called aloud to the wild man ahead of him, and in a moment had the satisfaction of seeing him drop lightly to his side from the branches above. For a moment, Tarzan looked at the young man closely, as though undecided as to just what was best to do. Then, stooping down before Clayton, he motioned him to grasp about his neck, and, with the white man upon his back, Tarzan took to the trees. The next few minutes the young Englishman never forgot. High into bending and swaying branches he was borne with what seemed to him incredible swiftness, while Tarzan chafed at the slowness of his progress. From one lofty branch, the agile creature swung with Clayton through a dizzy arc to a neighboring tree. Then, for a hundred yards maybe, the sure feet threaded a maze of interwoven limbs, balancing like a tightrope walker high above the black depths of the verdure beneath. From the first sensation of chilling fear, Clayton passed to one of keen admiration and envy of those giant muscles, and that wondrous instinct or knowledge which guided this forest god through the inky blackness of the night as easily and safely as Clayton would have strolled the London street at high noon. Occasionally they would enter a spot where the foliage above was less dense, and the bright rays of moonlight lit up before Clayton's wandering eyes the strange path they were traversing. At such times the man fairly caught his breath at the sight of the horrid depths below them, for Tarzan took the easiest way, which often led over a hundred feet above the earth. And yet, with all his seeming speed, Tarzan was in reality feeling his way with comparative slowness, searching constantly for limbs of adequate strength for the maintenance of this double weight. Presently, they came to the clearing before the beach. Tarzan's quick ears had heard the strange sound of Sabor's efforts to force her way through the lattice, and it seemed to Clayton that they dropped a straight hundred feet to earth, so quickly did Tarzan descend. Yet when they struck the ground, it was with scarce a jar, and as Clayton released his hold on the ape-man, he saw him dart like a squirrel to the opposite side of the cabin. The Englishman sprang quickly after him, just in time to see the hindquarters of some huge animal about to disappear through the window of the cabin. As Jane opened her eyes to a realization of the imminent peril which threatened her, her brave young heart gave up at last its final vestige of hope. But then, to her surprise, she saw the huge animal being slowly drawn back through the window, and in the moonlight beyond, she saw the heads and shoulders of two men. 
As Clayton rounded the corner of the cabin to behold the animal disappearing within, it was also to see the ape-man seize the long tail in both hands, and, bracing himself with his feet against the side of the cabin, throw all his mighty strength into the effort to draw the beast out of the interior. Clayton was quick to lend a hand, but the ape-man jabbered to him in a commanding and peremptory tone, something which Clayton knew to be orders, though he could not understand them. At last, under their combined efforts, the great body was slowly dragged farther and farther outside the window, and then there came to Clayton's mind a dawning conception of the rash bravery of his companion's act. For a naked man to drag a shrieking, clawing man-eater forth from a window, by the tail, to save a strange white girl, was indeed the last word in heroism. Insofar as Clayton was concerned, it was a very different matter, since the girl was not only his own race and kind— but was the one woman all the world whom he loved. Though he knew that the lioness would make short work of both of them, he pulled with a will to keep it from Jane Porter, and then he recalled the battle between this man and the great black-maned lion, which he had witnessed a short time before, and he commenced to feel more assurance. Tarzan was still issuing orders which Clayton could not understand. He was trying to tell the stupid white man to plunge his poisoned arrows into Sable's back and sides, and to reach the savage heart with the long, thin hunting knife that hung at Tarzan's hip, but the man would not understand, and Tarzan did not dare release his hold to do the thing himself, for he knew that the puny white man never could hold mighty Sable alone for an instant. Slowly, the lioness was emerging from the window. At last, her shoulders were out, and then Clayton saw an incredible thing— Tarzan, racking his brains for some means to cope single-handed with the infuriated beast, had suddenly recalled his battle with Turkholz, and as the great shoulders came clear of the window, so that the lioness hung upon the sill only by her forepaws, Tarzan suddenly released his hold upon the brute. With the quickness of a striking rattler, he launched himself full upon Sabor's back, his strong young arms seeking and gaining a full Nelson upon the beast, as he had learned in that other day during his bloody wrestling victory over Turkholz. With a roar, the lioness turned completely over upon her back, falling fully upon her enemy, but the black-haired giant only closed tighter his hold. Pawing and tearing at earth and air, Sable rolled and threw herself this way and that in an effort to dislodge this strange antagonist, but even tighter and tighter drew the iron bands that were forcing her head lower and lower upon her tawny breast. Higher crept the steel forearms of the ape-man about the back of Sable's neck. Weaker and weaker became the lioness's efforts. At last, Clayton saw the immense muscles of Tarzan's shoulders and biceps leap into corded knots beneath the silver moonlight. There was a long, sustained and supreme effort on the ape-man's part, and the vertebrae of Sabor's neck parted with a sharp snap. In an instant, Tarzan was upon his feet, and for the second time that day, Clayton heard the bull-ape's savage roar of victory. Then he heard Jane's agonized cry. "'Cecil! Mr. Clayton! Oh, what is it? What is it?' Running quickly to the cabin door, Clayton called out that all was right, and shouted to her to open the door. As quickly as she could, she raised the great bar, and fairly dragged Clayton within. "'What was that awful noise?' she whispered, shrinking close to him. "'It was the cry of the kill from the throat of the man who has just saved your life, Miss Porter. Wait, I will fetch him so that you may thank him.' The frightened girl would not be left alone, so she accompanied Clayton to the side of the cabin, where lay the dead body of the lioness. Tarzan of the Apes was gone. Clayton called several times, but there was no reply, and so the two returned to the greater safety of the interior. "'What a frightful sound!' cried Jane. "'I shudder at the mere thought of it. 
Do not tell me that a human throat voiced that hideous and fearsome shriek. But it did, Miss Porter, replied Clayton. Or at least, if not a human throat, that of a forest god. And then he told her of his experiences with this strange creature, of how twice the wild man had saved his life, of the wondrous strength and agility and bravery of the brown skin and the handsome face. I cannot make it out at all, he concluded. At first I thought he might be Tarzan of the Apes, but he neither speaks nor understands English, so that theory is untenable. Well, whatever he may be, cried the girl, we owe him our lives, and may God bless him and keep him in safety in this wild and savage jungle. Amen, said Clayton fervently. For the good Lord's sake, ain't I dead? The two turned to see Esmeralda sitting upright upon the floor, her great eyes rolling from side to side, as though she could not believe their testimony as to her whereabouts. And now for Jane Porter, the reaction came, and she threw herself upon the bench, sobbing with hysterical laughter. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 16 Most Remarkable Several miles south of the cabin, upon a strip of sandy beach, stood two old men, arguing. Before them stretched the broad Atlantic. At their backs was the dark continent. Close around them loomed the impenetrable blackness of the jungle. Savage beasts roared and growled. Noises, hideous and weird, assailed their ears. They had wandered for miles in search of their camp, but always in the wrong direction. They were as hopelessly lost as though they suddenly had been transported to another world. At such a time, indeed, every fibre of their combined intellects must have been concentrated upon the vital question of the minute, the life-and-death question to them of retracing their steps to camp. Samuel T. Philander was speaking. "'But, my dear professor,' he was saying, "'I still maintain that but for the victories of Ferdinand and Isabella over the fifteenth-century Moors in Spain, the world would be today a thousand years in advance of where we find ourselves. The Moors were essentially a tolerant, broad-minded, liberal race of agriculturists, artisans, and merchants, the very type of people that have made possible such civilizations as we find today in America and Europe, while the Spaniards—' "'Tut, tut, dear Mr. Philander,' interrupted Professor Porter. Their religion positively precluded the possibilities you suggest. Muslimism was, is, and always will be, a blight on that scientific progress which is marked— Bless me, Professor, interjected Mr. Philander, who had turned his gaze toward the jungle. There seems to be someone approaching. 
Professor Archimedes Q. Porter turned in the direction indicated by the near-sighted Mr. Philander. Tut tut, Mr. Philander, he chided. How often must I urge you to seek that absolute concentration of your mental faculties which alone may permit you to bring to bear the highest powers of intellectuality upon the momentous problems which naturally fall to the lot of great minds? And now I find you guilty of a most flagrant breach of courtesy in interrupting my learned discourse to call attention to a mere quadruped of the genus Felis. As I was saying, Mr. Heavens, Professor, a lion! cried Mr. Philander, straining his weak eyes toward the dim figure outlined against the dark tropical underbrush. Yes, yes, Mr. Philander, if you insist upon employing slang in your discourse, a lion, but as I was saying... Bless me, Professor, again interrupted Mr. Philander, permit me to suggest that doubtless the Moors who were conquered in the fifteenth century will continue in that most regrettable condition for the time being at least, even though we postpone discussion of that world calamity until we may attain the enchanting view of yon Felis Canivora, which distance proverbially is credited with lending. In the meantime, the lion had approached with quiet dignity to within ten paces of the two men, where he stood, curiously watching them. The moonlight flooded the beach, and the strange group stood out in bold relief against the yellow sand. "'Most reprehensible! Most reprehensible!' exclaimed Professor Porter, with a faint trace of irritation in his voice. "'Never, Mr. Philander, never before in my life have I known one of these animals to be permitted to roam at large from its cage. I shall most certainly report this outrageous breach of ethics to the directors of the adjacent zoological garden.' "'Quite right, Professor,' agreed Mr. Philander. "'And the sooner it is done, the better. Let us start now.' Seizing the Professor by the arm, Mr. Philander set off in the direction that would put the greatest distance between themselves and the lion. They had proceeded but a short distance when a backward glance revealed to the horrified gaze of Mr. Philander that the lion was following them. He tightened his grip upon the protesting Professor and increased his speed. "'As I was saying, Mr. Philander,' repeated Professor Porter. Mr. Philander took another hasty glance rearward. The lion also had quickened his gait, and was doggedly maintaining an unvarying distance behind them. "'He is following us!' gasped Mr. Philander, breaking into a run. "'Tut-tut, Mr. Philander!' remonstrated the Professor. "'This unseemly haste is most unbecoming to men of letters. "'What would our friends think of us, "'who may chance to be upon the street "'and witness our frivolous antics? "'Pray, let us proceed with more decorum.' Mr. Philander stole another observation astern. The lion was bounding along, an easy leap scarce five paces behind. Mr. Philander dropped the professor's arm and broke into a mad orgy of speed that would have done credit to any varsity track team. "'As I was saying, Mr. Philander,' screamed Professor Porter, as, metaphorically speaking, he himself threw her into high. He, too, had caught a fleeting backward glimpse of cruel yellow eyes and half-open mouth within startling proximity to his person. With streaming coattails and shiny silk hat, Professor Archimedes Q. Porter fled through the moonlight close upon the heels of Mr. Samuel T. Philander. Before them, a point of the jungle ran out toward a narrow promontory, and it was for the haven of trees he saw there that Mr. Samuel T. Philander directed his prodigious leaps and bounds, while from the shadows of this same spot peered two keen eyes in interested appreciation of the race. It was Tarzan of the Apes, who watched, with face a grin, this odd game of follow the leader. 
He knew the two men were safe enough from attack insofar as the lion was concerned. The very fact that Numa had forgone such easy prey at all convinced the wise forest-crafted Tarzan that Numa's belly already was full. The lion might stalk them until hungry again, but the chances were that if not angered, he would soon tire of the sport and slink away to his jungle lair. Really, the one danger was that one of the men might stumble and fall, and then the yellow devil would be upon him in a moment, and the joy of the kill would be too great a temptation to withstand. So, Tarzan quickly swung to a lower limb in line with the approaching fugitives, and as Mr. Samuel T. Philander came panting and blowing beneath him, already too spent to struggle up to the safety of the limb, Tarzan reached down and, grasping him by the collar, yanked him to the limb by his side. Another moment brought the professor within the sphere of the friendly grip, and he too was drawn upward to safety just as the baffled Numa, with a roar, leaped to recover his vanquished quarry. For a moment, the two men clung panting to the great branch, while Tarzan squatted with his back to the stem of the tree, watching them with mingled curiosity and amusement. It was the professor who first broke the silence. "'I am deeply paid, Mr. Flander, that you should have evinced such a paucity of manly courage in the presence of one of the lower orders, and by your crass timidity have caused me to exert myself to such an unaccustomed degree, in order that I may resume my discourse. As I was saying, Mr. Flander, when you interrupted me, the moors—' "'Professor Porter,' broke in Mr. Flander in icy tones, "'the time has arrived when patience becomes a crime and mayhem appears garbed in the mantle of virtue.' "'You have accused me of cowardice. "'You have insinuated that you ran only to overtake me, "'not to escape the clutches of a lion. "'Have a care, Professor. "'I am a desperate man. "'Goaded by long-suffering patience, the worm will turn.' "'Tut-tut, Mr. Philander. "'Tut-tut,' cautioned Professor Porter. "'You forget yourself.' "'I forget nothing as yet, Professor Porter. "'But believe me, sir, I am tottering on the verge of forgetfulness "'as to your exalted position in the world of science and your grey hairs.' "'The professor sat in silence for a few minutes, "'and the darkness behind the grim smile that wreathed his wrinkled countenance. "'Presently he spoke. "'Look here, skinny Philander,' he said in belligerent tones. "'If you are looking for a scrap, peel off your coat and come down on the ground, "'and I'll punch your head just as I did sixty years ago in the alley back of Porky Evans' barn.' Hark! gasped the astonished Mr. Philander. "'Lordy, how good that sounds! When you're human, Ark, I love you, "'but somehow it seems as though you had forgotten how to be human for the last twenty years.' "'The professor reached out a thin, trembling old hand through the darkness "'until it found its old friend's shoulder.' Oh, forgive me, Skinny, he said softly. It hasn't been quite twenty years, and God alone knows how hard I've tried to be human for Jane's sake, and yours too, since he took my other Jane away. Another old hand stole up from Mr. Philander's side to clasp the one that lay upon his shoulder, and no other message could better have translated the one heart to the other. They did not speak for some minutes. The line below them paced nervously back and forth. The third figure in the tree was hidden by the dense shadows near the stem. He, too, was silent, motionless as a graven image. "'You certainly pulled me up into this tree just in time,' said the professor at last. "'I want to thank you. You saved my life.' "'But I did not pull you up here, professor,' said Mr. Philander. "'Bless me!' The excitement of the moment quite caused me to forget that I myself was drawn up here by some outside agency. There must be someone or something in this tree with us. Eh? ejaculated Professor Porter. Are you quite positive, Mr. Philander? Most positive, Professor, replied Mr. Philander. And, he added, 
I think we should thank the party. He may be sitting right next to you, Professor. Eh? What's that? Tut-tut, Mr. Philander, tut-tut, said Professor Porter, edging cautiously nearer to Mr. Philander. Just then, it occurred to Tarzan of the Apes that Numa had loitered beneath the tree for a sufficient length of time, so he raised his young head toward the heavens, and there rang out upon the terrified ears of the two old men the awful warning challenge of the anthropoid. The two friends, huddled trembling in the precarious position on the limb, saw the great lion halt in his restless pacing as the blood-curdling cry smote his ears, and then slink quickly into the jungle to be instantly lost to view. "'Even the lion trembles in fear,' whispered Mr. Philander. "'Most remarkable, most remarkable,' murmured Professor Porter, clutching frantically at Mr. Philander to regain the balance which the sudden fright had so perilously endangered. Unfortunately for them both, Mr. Philander's centre of equilibrium was at that very moment hanging upon the ragged edge of nothing, so that it needed but the gentle impetus supplied by the additional weight of Professor Porter's body to topple the devoted secretary from the limb. For a moment they swayed uncertainly, and then, with mingled and most unscholarly shrieks, they pitched headlong from the tree, locked in frenzied embrace. It was quite some moments ere either moved, for both were positive that any such attempt would reveal so many breaks and fractures as to make further progress impossible. At length, Professor Porter made an attempt to move one leg. It responded to his will as in days gone by. He now drew up its mate and stretched it forth again. "'Most remarkable, most remarkable,' he murmured. "'Thank God, Professor,' whispered Mr. Philander fervently. "'You are not dead, then?' "'Tut-tut, Mr. Philander, tut-tut,' cautioned Professor Porter. "'I do not know with accuracy as yet.' With infinite solicitude, Professor Porter wheeled his right arm. Joy! It was intact. Breathlessly, he waved his left arm above his prostrate body. It waved. "'Most remarkable, most remarkable,' he said. "'To whom are you signalling, Professor?' asked Mr. Philander in an excited tone. Professor Porter designed to make no response to this puerile inquiry. Instead, he raised his head gently from the ground, nodding him back and forth a half-dozen times. "'Most remarkable,' he breathed. "'It remains intact.' Mr. Philander had not moved from where he had fallen. He had not dared the attempt. How indeed could one move when one's arms and legs and back were broken? One eye was buried in the soft loam. The other, rolling sidewise, was fixed in awe upon the strange gyrations of Professor Porter." "'How sad!' exclaimed Mr. Philander, half aloud. "'Conscious of the brain, superinducing total mental aberration. "'How very sad indeed, and for one still so young!' Professor Porter rolled over upon his stomach. Gingerly, he bowed his back until he resembled a huge tomcat in proximity to a yelping dog. Then he sat up and felt various portions of his anatomy. "'They're all here!' he exclaimed. "'Most remarkable!' Whereupon he arose, and, bending a scathing glance upon the still prostrate form of Mr. Samuel T. Philander, he said, "'Tut, tut, Mr. Philander, this is no time to indulge in slothful ears. We must be up and doing.' Mr. Philander lifted his other eye out of the mud, and gazed in speechless rage at Professor Porter. Then he attempted to rise. Nor could there have been any more surprise than he, when his efforts were immediately crowned with marked success.' He was still bursting with rage, however, at the cruel injustice of Professor Porter's insinuation, and was on the point of rendering a tart rejoinder when his eyes fell upon a strange figure, standing a few paces away, scrutinizing them intently. Professor Porter recovered his shiny silk hat, which he had brushed carefully upon the sleeve of his coat and replaced upon his head. When he saw Mr. Philander pointing to something behind him, he turned to behold a giant, 
naked but for a loincloth and a few metal ornaments, standing motionless before him. "'Good evening, sir,' said the professor, lifting his hat. For reply, the giant motioned them to follow him, and set off up the beach in the direction from which they had recently come. "'I think it's the better part of discretion to follow him,' said Mr. Philander. "'Tut-tut, Mr. Philander,' returned the professor. "'A short time since you were advancing a most logical argument in substantiation of your theory that camp lay directly south of us. I was sceptical, but you finally convinced me. So now I am positive that toward the south we must travel to reach our friends. Therefore, I shall continue south.' "'But, Professor Poulter, this man may know better than either of us. He seems to be indigenous to this part of the world. Let us at least follow him a short distance.' "'Tut-tut, Mr. Philander,' repeated the professor. I am a difficult man to convince, but when once convinced, my decision is unalterable. I shall continue in the proper direction, if I have to circumambulate the continent of Africa to reach my destination. Further argument was interrupted by Tarzan, who, seeing that these strange men were not following him, had returned to their side. Again, he beckoned to them, but they stood in argument. Presently, the ape man lost patience with their stupid ignorance. He grasped the frightened Mr. Flander by the shoulder, and before that worthy gentleman knew whether he was being killed or merely maimed for life, Tarzan had tied one end of his rope securely around Dr. Flander's neck. "'Tut, tut, Mr. Flander,' remonstrated Professor Porter. "'It is most unbeseeming in you to submit to such indignities.' But scarcely were the words out of his mouth, ere he, too, had been seized and securely bound by the neck with the same rope. Then— Tarzan set off toward the north, leading the now thoroughly frightened professor and his secretary. In deathly silence, they proceeded for what seemed hours to the two tired and hopeless old men, but presently, as they topped a little rise of ground, they were overjoyed to see the cabin lying before them, not a hundred yards distant. Here, Tarzan released them, and, pointing toward the little building, vanished into the jungle beside them. "'Most remarkable! Most remarkable!' gasped the professor. But you see, Mr. Philander, that I was quite right as usual, and, but for your stubborn willfulness, we should have escaped a series of most humiliating, not to say dangerous accidents. Uh, pray allow yourself to be guided by a more mature and practical mind hereafter, when in need of wise counsel. Mr. Samuel T. Philander was too much relieved at the happy outcome of their adventure to take umbrage at the professor's cruel fling. Instead, he grasped his friend's arm and hastened him forward in the direction of the cabin. It was a much-relieved party of castaways that found itself once more united. Dawn discovered them still recounting their various adventures, and speculating upon the identity of the strange guardian and protector they had found on this savage shore. Esmeralda was positive that it was none other than an angel of the Lord, sent down especially to watch over them. "'Had you see him devour the raw meat of the line, Esmeralda?' laughed Clayton. "'You would have thought him a very material angel.' "'There was nothing heavenly about his voice,' said Jane Porter, with a little shudder at recollection of the awful roar which had followed the killing of the lioness. "'Nor did it precisely comport with my preconceived ideas of the dignity of divine messengers,' remarked Professor Porter. "'When the, uh, gentlemen tied two highly respectable and erudite scholars neck to neck and dragged them through the jungle as though they had been cows.' All right, we'll wrap it up for this week, but don't worry, we'll have another episode coming at you very soon. 
I mentioned this before, but just want to throw it out there again. If uh, you or somebody you know wants to help with the podcast, one of the best ways is uh, for somebody to volunteer to help me edit these episodes. Like I said, this is a labor of love. I'm just doing this because I enjoy doing it. But the editing does take uh, some of my time that I could be narrating. So if I can narrate and then pass it off to somebody to edit, that would save so much more time and I'd be able to put out maybe even two episodes a week or at least just longer episodes every week. So if that's something that you'd be interested in doing or if you know somebody, just let me know. I'd love to talk with you and see what we could work out. If that doesn't sound like something you want to do or be a part of, another way you can uh, help me out is just by supporting the podcast on Anchor. You can do that. The link's just below in the in the episode description. Just click on support the podcast and uh, any donations are going to go toward helping me produce more content for you guys. So if you enjoy these free audiobooks, then uh, just let me know by uh, supporting the podcast really appreciate anything and everything that you guys do and just for downloading and sharing if none of those things sound like things that you want to do just tell somebody about the podcast spreading the word is a great way to support the podcast thanks so much for doing that and uh, we'll talk to you next week don't worry you aren't the only one you aren't the only business that needs help you aren't the only person that has a hard time finding the right help at the right price This is where Business Bloodline becomes your bloodline to temporary and permanent staffing. Business Bloodline specializes in hiring internet workers to creatively solve problems for your business. Business Bloodline does all the vetting and only delivers candidates that make sense for your needs and at a cost that you can afford. But 60 seconds isn't enough for me to tell you why hiring through Business Bloodline is safer, cheaper, and less time-consuming. We would rather show you. To get more information or a business consultation, visit businessbloodline.com. If the job can be done on a computer, Business Bloodline can find a match. Visit businessbloodline.com and tell them that you heard about it on Another World Audiobooks to get 10% off your first hire. Remember to mention that you heard about it on Another World Audiobooks to get that 10% off. Businessbloodline.com